Hello and welcome to this episode of the Event Manager Podcast called New Audience Priorities with Ken Holsinger, the Senior Vice President of Strategy at Freeman. This episode is all about attendee research and the numbers, the data, and the analysis that Ken can provide from the incredible data set that he has at Freeman. We talk about how having a large number of people live answering questions can be super powerful. We talk about why it's important to match sentiment data and behavior data. We talk about what overall attendance is now tracking across different sectors in the meetings industry. And we talk about how business and personal life is overlapping and how you can see that coming through in the data. We talk about learning from audiences and we talk about how audiences need to connect with each other and break through silos to really make progress. I hope you enjoy this fascinating episode of the Event Manager Podcast, and please don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast service. And now for a word from our sponsors, PHL Life Sciences, a division of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. Host your convention or trade show in Philadelphia, one of America's leading life sciences hubs. PHL Life Sciences, the first and only CVB division of its kind, will connect you to the professionals at the forefront of your industry and to a culture you can only find in Philadelphia. A city known for its rich history that's forging a bright future, Philadelphia challenges the expected and defies convention. A world of discovery is waiting. Visit phllife.com to learn more. Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's podcast episode. I'm delighted to be joined by Ken Holsinger, the Senior Vice President Strategy at Freeman. Ken, thank you very much for joining us today on the show. I'm so glad to be here, Miguel. Thanks for having me. So, Ken, we wanted to start, I always start by just getting a little bit of an introduction from our guests uh, about their, their kind of journey in the event industry. And I've read through your bio and there's some really interesting stuff in there, particularly your, your previous companies, um, cloud.com. I wanted to kind of get a little bit of a feeling of who you are and how did you get to be you and, you know, at this moment in time? Well, it's, it's a journey, as you saw. Um, kind of backing up before cloud.com, <clears throat> we actually, I started my career actually in AV. Uh, I managed a large AV company. We did all of the normal stuff you'd expect from you know building conference rooms to doing events and things. Um, I recognized in the early 2000s, 2004-ish, that uh, IT and AV were going to be crashing together. Talked to my business partners about what that meant for our business, and they disagreed. I, I thought that I think my quote was, I think these flat screens are going to be on the shelves at Costco soon. They thought I was a little crazy. Uh, So they bought me out and I moved into the software side of things and uh, led a large startup on the content and production side of of, uh, healthcare, technology, et cetera. We did uh, a platform that delivered content on the web. Uh, We were the first content delivery video app on the iPad the day it launched. That was my my big claim to fame there. And then I moved into the interactive side and I started a company uh, called cloud.com, as you mentioned, which was which was really the intersection of mobile and crowds. So there it's the crowd in the cloud, the cloud.com was the um, K-L-O-W-D uh, was, the, was the company. I actually sold that company to Freeman uh, we built mobile interactive platforms that you could use at a large event, particularly to facilitate presentations. Uh, today, it sounds pretty mundane, but 
uh, in 2010, it was pretty groundbreaking that you could push uh, content, slides, et cetera, to a mobile device, allow for interactivity, questions, voting, uh, and our, our big piece, and it's really where I uh, dug heavily into the data side, which is the big part of my job now, uh, was what is happening on the back end, what content is actually hitting with an audience, uh, not only that, the statistical relevance of large audience, because as you can imagine, when you do a lot of polling or survey work, a thousand people in a nationwide survey is pretty normal uh, of what you see from like a presidential uh, campaign survey, that kind of thing. But at events, we had thousands of people giving us opinions in real time. And so I really began to focus in on understanding how to ask the right questions. And then, of course, bringing people around me that were smarter than me in data science to build that together. And that's kind of uh, after uh, I sold the company to Freeman. I led that division for a while, helped build out our digital presence as, as Freeman, and then have moved into this data and strategy role now that uh, I sit in currently. Yeah, thank you for, for taking us on that journey. Um, just out of curiosity, does Freeman still use the product or part of the product in, in their current offering? Yeah, part of the product. It, it's been integrated, as you can imagine, particularly during the pandemic. A lot of those things collapsed into a, a, a morph of their prior selves into all things uh, online events. But um, but yeah, that, that some of that team is still around. And uh, I actually built that company here in Boise, Idaho, where I still uh, reside and um, travel from most of the time. But yeah, that we we learned a lot from that. We uh, retained a lot of the um, IP and patents and things that, that Freeman continues to deploy. Fascinating. And I love what you were saying about the amazing power of having these, these large audiences in a room and then kind of asking questions and having these devices collect data. Um, I remember, I think, CITE, uh, the Society for Incentive Travel Excellence, they did one of their kind of annual surveys that would normally take months to do. They ended up doing it at a general session live and just asked the people that were there uh, and I think got very similar number of results. And it just sort of made so much sense. You have all these people that are the key people in the room. Why not ask them there and then and also project the results as you're asking them. So that makes it really interesting for them to answer the questions live, right? And we found it was as interesting to not only gather and uh, get their feedback and their maybe their, even their statistically relevant survey information, but it was also interesting to know um, really the attention span and the activity points, truly engagement points of, of an audience. What what content is, is uh, hitting with them? Um, what ideas do they resonate with? We found, no surprise in, in my current space, that for instance, the highest level of engagement was when a presenter would provide some sort of data point on a slide. Um, of course, the things like narrative and story were incredibly important. But much to the chagrin of my creative partners, we found that the, the the beauty of the slides had little, if nothing, to do with the consumption and interaction and engagement with the content. It was really that's the icing on the cake. Whereas we've all been told that, you know, if your slides are ugly, that nobody's going to listen. And I, I actually would tell you that the most engaging presentation we ever tracked was a room of a thousand landscape architects listening to an 86-year-old 
uh, wonderful PhD describing her work with special needs children uh, designing playgrounds. And her slides, and I would say this if she were sitting here today, were the ugliest slides you've ever seen in your life. Uh, word art and, you know, just the flying animations and no, horrible colors and low resolution video. But her story and her data completely captivated the audience and we got the highest engagement scores we'd ever seen. So it was a fascinating space to, to watch for sure. Absolutely. So let's dive in into to the data. Um, how do you use data in your, in your job? You know, tell us a little bit about what your job entails and how you use data. So I would just back up to, you know, prior to the pandemic, we have uh, a very storied research group that that we acquired into Freeman uh, exhibit surveys uh, or ESI as they're more well known, Skip Cox and Ian Sequira and that team out of New Jersey. Uh, Freeman acquired that company in 2016, and I led that team um, prior to the pandemic. Uh, and it, it was really just understanding, doing intercept interviews, post post-event surveys, um, really analyzing whether it was how is the show doing, what are the exhibitors satisfied, particularly attendee satisfaction, et cetera. And we were quite good at that. We hold 40, 50 years of benchmarks that we still, well, I'll, I'll explain why I, I, we, we don't apply them today, but, but they're still relevant in our work. During the pandemic, things shifted, of course, and uh, we began to very quickly, uh, I started getting on conference calls in, in actually late February of 20 uh, because uh, I was being pulled in to say, what's going on with these events? What are people thinking, et cetera? And uh, I began to do what we do today, which is a lot of secondary research saying, okay, it's great if we hear from event planners, et cetera, but what are sporting events going to do? What is entertainment going to do? What are restaurants doing? Which really tells more about the mind of the attendee that we're trying to track than necessarily what are meeting planners going to do. And that proved, frankly, to be a very good path because we began to do research that really no one else was doing because we had access to so many groups of attendees. So we built a panel of 1.6 million uh, attendees across 14 waves of research during the pandemic and continue. And that work basically guided us through the pandemic. What cities were going to be uh, maybe opening up sooner than others based on sentiment and, and looking, of course, at the secondary data on infection and re resolution and mitigation. We, we really built a more uh, visible presence in the industry coming out with this research and and frankly worked quite well like we've partnered together miguel with skift on a number of different reports uh that you guys did particularly talking to meeting planners etc we just used that to to really compare and we saw a very different picture emerge attendees were telling us early even in early march of that year that they saw this as a long-term impact on events that this wasn't going to be over soon. Whereas if you talked in the industry, we're going to shut down for a couple of weeks, kind of reset things. We'll, we all remember the early, you know, uh, shutdown that was done in the, in particularly in North America, but really around the world where it was, if we just will isolate for two, three, four weeks, we'll, this will be fine. And my team began to say, 
based on what we're seeing, we don't think that's the case, not just on the disease state and what was happening, but really on the mentality of the attendee. And that's really been our differentiation as we've moved through. Just just kind of to dig in a little bit there, how was that um, received internally? Because I imagine that's not the news people want to hear, right? And oh, how did I, you have those conversations? I was not a popular person in meetings during that time frame. Um, I will say our leadership, the senior leadership, Bob and Janet, Bob Priestek and Janet Dell, really uh, pulled our team in and we were we were working with our senior financial planning teams, et cetera, literally doing forecasts that helped us understand how to um, how to plan. And they leaned in and received it quite well. Our sales teams and our operations teams in the field that particularly knew that either they were going to be directly impacted or their teams were going to be impacted by the necessary furloughs and various things that had to be done across the industry. We're, we're not happy to hear it. It was almost as though if we brought the bad news, uh, others would listen and it would just further the bad news, right? That we were actually maybe even a cause. Um, and that was not just internal to Freeman. That was industry-wide as we would go out to <clears throat> meeting planners, et cetera. That tone shifted significantly. I think that in June of 20, none of us like to look back at the details, but if you look at where the pandemic was, all of a sudden it was like, yeah, this short-term thing isn't working and this is we're going to be in it for the long haul. And all of a sudden um, we couldn't uh, present the information fast enough. People were soaking it up and we accelerated our research and um, it was quite well received. Nobody wants to hear bad news, but when you're talking about um, getting in, getting the industry in front of the the governmental bodies, et cetera. Our data was used to talk to the State Department on visas, to talk to the to Congress on travel related bills and, and incentives packages, and of course, out of that grew some of the industry lobbying and influence in Washington that the industry needed that we really didn't have prior to the pandemic that's that's now in place. I think I'm I'm proud to say I think we were a, a part of uh, an industry-wide effort that that kind of fueled a better communication using data to uh to to prognosticate where we were going. Yeah, I really like that point about better communication using data. I think that's that's super important. So let's dive into the data. I know that you release a number of different research pieces over the last few years and maybe prior to that, but where does this data come from and, and how do you collect it and how do you analyze it? Yeah, so I mentioned our methodology is we use, uh, we partner with show management to, uh, with our registration platforms, et cetera, to pull in with their permissions, the um, the respondents. So they it comes on behalf of the show that they participated in in participation with Freeman. So. Acme Show, in participation with Freeman, wants to ask you some questions. Like typical surveys, there's an incentive uh, drawing uh, for a gift card uh, somewhere in there. Um, we did that uh, 13 times since uh, March of 20. Really uh, did our last round of what I would call pandemic benchmarking was done, was finished this last uh, September. 
And then the data that we're going to talk about today is actually our first kind of what is what do things look like outside of that? We pulled a lot of the COVID and pandemic and, you know, questions about masks and all the things that we all know happened during the pandemic. We pulled all of that out and really began to focus on who is the net new audience? What does this audience want? What shifted? What didn't shift? And that's the the first round that we're talking about today uh, was done this this fall. Uh, large respondent pool. In this particular case, we had almost 5,000 respondents. Um, our margin of error is really where we target the, the, the veracity of the data. We don't want anything less than 5%, certainly, and we were targeting across our data to be under 3%. We hit that in all 14 waves now. This last wave was actually our most successful low margin of error. So uh, we're at plus minus 1.5% on this, which just to give context proudly for my team, uh, that's unheard of in the in the, in the the uh, survey space. Most of the stuff that guide elections and uh, public opinion polling is in the five plus percent margin of error and most is over 10. Um, and if they don't tell you what the margin of error is, there's your uh, your, your, you know, you need to dig in. <laughs> yeah. So for those who are not traded statistics, what does that mean? 1% margin of error or 10% margin of error? So we use a calculation that's well uh, established across the, uh, across the industries that basically calculates how accurate is this information. So if, if I was to say to you that we had a 10% margin of error, that means that uh, if, if, so, if we said 50% of people said this, then really the the variance might be from 40 to 60 percent uh okay. it, it would be the way that it would calculate out so when we get down to 1.5 percent we basically would say that anything above a differential of 1.5 percent would be statistically relevant any response if I said in this survey 51 percent of people said this then effectively the it, there's nothing statistically relevant against the 49 right because we're within the margin of error. If we're outside the margin of error, we say, okay, pay attention. When we get five, 10, 15 points outside of margin, like we've got on a few of these millennials, 30% of millennials said this, but only 10% of boomers. Now you're talking about significant statistical, scientifically backed relevance between the two answers. I imagine you also survey your clients, the organizers, et cetera, but the data we're talking about here is particularly about attendees, right? The people that are so, actually attending shows. Yeah, we're going to talk about two things. These are all attendees across. We we sample across industries intentionally. So we look at all the major verticals, uh, looking at the five top categories of, of, of shows. So you're talking about technology, healthcare, manufacturing, supply chain, business services, and retail are the representation here. Um, and then we, uh, we look at that kind of how we read through that, we might look at uh, age groups and demographics in that as well. The other piece that we'll talk about later on today is with each quarter's research panel that we put together, we also look at our event tech platforms, particularly registration, and we say, okay, the sentiment said this, but what is the actual behavior? I'll give you a really fun example that I'm sure you're very familiar with, Miguel, um, sentiment versus behavior. Uh, during the pandemic and even now, if you ask attendees, 
What's the most important thing about virtual platforms for you? What's the benefit? They would say, well, I love the content on demand. I uh, So as high as 90% during the waves of the, of the pandemic and as low as only 73% said, this is the most important thing. Content on demand later, I can go back and get it, right? I'm sure you've seen data like that. Do you know what the behavior tells us? The behavior says, less than 10% actually do it. Mm -hmm. So it's always, so I'm going to bring my sentiment and I'm going to look at behavior data to just say, okay, where do we need to to call BS and recalibrate? Let let me challenge that for a second. And and you tell me if I'm thinking this about this wrong, but I think in some ways what I, what I hear is for marketing purposes, making sure people understand that it's on demand is super important because people have the intention of yep. watching it on demand. Now, whether they do it or not, doesn't really impact if they register or not, right? It just actually impacts the way, like I sign up for a bunch of events that I never attend online. I think yep. everybody else does. So I think that's yep. the behavior. Am I reading that right? No, you're absolutely correct. And I think you've read it perfectly, which is the, the on the sentiment side, you better use that in your marketing, but perhaps in the operational side, the way I would practically apply it don't promise that you're going to put all the content online. Maybe we use data, which we're doing. We'll we'll actually analyze the show and say, this is the top 10% of content that people really uh, engaged in, whether it's at a hybrid event or an online event. And we'll we'll put that out on demand. So we're we're meeting that sentiment promise, but we're matching it operationally because budgets can't handle putting a ton of content out there, recording every room at a convention center, putting it all online and building out these platforms. You know, as, as you can imagine, the most expensive place on the planet to stream content from is a convention center. So actually during the pandemic, when we weren't in convention centers, it was reasonable to do what we're doing today. We broadcast from our living room. We all got better lighting. We all got a better microphone and we just dug in. You get into a convention center with the labor costs, the streaming costs, et cetera. So yeah, matching sentiment with behavior has a very tactical approach to market this way. Make sure you're meeting the promise with the matching your budget and operational commitment um, as a result of the behavioral data. Thanks for going there. And I love digging into that because I do think that a lot of times we're presented with data, and I'm not saying this about the Friedman research necessarily, but other many different sources of data. And I like to understand what the question, what question was asked, who was asked, and and sometimes the data can be interpreted in multiple different ways. And the obvious interpretation is not always the the correct one, or or at least we can learn from kind of making sure we understand the full picture when when the questions come through. Are you ready to celebrate your successes in the world of meetings and events? The Skift Meetings Awards are back for 2024, recognizing the most innovative business events companies across 15 categories, and we want you to be a part of it. Winners will feature on Skift Meetings, sending a clear signal to events professionals around the world that these are partners they can rely on. The final deadline for submissions is June 11th. We encourage you to start your submission today to secure the best entry rates. For more information and to start your submission, head to live.skift.com.
let's jump into the data. Let's see what, what we're seeing right now. And, and essentially what I'd really like to jump into is what's different, really. And I think you, you're going to tell us what, what's changed, right? This is the 14th round. Yeah. What, what are you seeing? 14th round, but to be clear, first round of what I would call the recovery or post-pandemic benchmarking. So I mentioned a little bit of a tease earlier that while we have these benchmarks from the past, mm -hmm. we're really establishing new benchmarks going forward. It's going to take two or three years to truly say these are the net new benchmarks. And I, I'm going to share a few things that that I think will uh, encourage some and discourage others that I don't think we're going to see because of the shift in audience. Okay, some of the same long term patterns that we saw previously. We're going to see a much faster churn of of trend. Why are you? considering this data differently? Is it just because the questions you asked in the previous 13 rounds were so pandemic focused that that's no longer relevant? Yeah. Okay. So it's more about those COVID it's behavior. Yeah. questions. What, is, what are you looking for at the event? What's going to keep you, you know, from staying in your home office versus coming to an event? What are your preferences when you're at an event? Yeah, that's very similar. Some of that is... Some of the research yeah. that we've done, you know, we we did the state of the event industry and it was kind of the same thing. We, we went through all that and we yeah. did a whole new research piece last year because the 60% of the questions were just, they just didn't make any more sense. Yeah, I think we're on the same page. I think you guys have done such a great job of talking to the planning side, the, the organizer side of the equation. And we're balancing that with, you know, we as meeting planners might think this, but mm -hmm. attendees are telling us this. And there's some differences. So um, uh, so the, the biggest thing that I think that the aha moment for us was, well, for the first time in our data research, including all of those waves of research during the pandemic, millennials are the largest audience of respondents. So and like the workforce, Gen X never was. What happened during the pandemic was an acceleration of retirement. And interestingly enough, because of the performance of the stock market over the past 10 years here in the US, a lot of even older Gen X and particularly younger boomers had a had a, their 401ks did quite well at that point. And here at the age of 55, you can begin to draw, draw out without all of the penalties. We saw for the first time in history over half of the workforce over the age of 55 left the workforce. 50.3% of the workforce over the age of 55 was gone after the pandemic. So all of a sudden, millennials are the largest respondent group. So of the roughly 5,000 that we have across four generations now in our data set, a very small amount of Gen Z, millennials was the large were the largest group in the respondent pool. Um, and what does that mean? Well, prior to the pandemic, benchmarks were the average age of an event attendee was 51 years old. They were uh, five years post high school education, $125,000 in US uh, income, and uh, they were 78% male. That's your snapshot of an event attendee prior to the pandemic, right? Heavily loaded by the boomers on the top end. We are projecting because of what we're seeing in the data that not only millennials will be the largest attendee set going forward, but that we will see shifts uh, in uh, more rapid shifts in gender, more rapid shifts across uh, the, the whole spectrum of previous benchmark. We're seeing that in a few key areas. 
this group of millennials that came out in the last respondent pool, their opinions dominate a lot of the results I'm going to give you. And they shift the pre-pandemic behavior norms to post-pandemic behavior norms. Some of that is pandemic related. A lot of it is generationally related. And so I find that as a researcher, incredibly exciting because it's not just this negative fear factor of what did we respond to during this crisis, but really what does the next really begin to shape up and look like going forward? And you believe the the demographics is going to make the answers to kind of everything else really shift in many ways? And we've and we're seeing it. Um, we're seeing it in a few different key areas. The, the the easiest one to relate to is we asked prior to the pandemic for um, for 40 years, we would ask attendees, what are stack rank the following activities at an event? And we would I will put them in no and they would we would randomize the order. Special events, keynotes, education sessions, networking and exhibits. Those are the five things we would ask them to stack rank at an event, right? What are the activities that you prefer at an event? Here's where we were. Prior to the pandemic, across all segments, education rose to the top in every segment. I'm I'm looking for some sort of professional certification, enrichment, class, et cetera. And usually keynotes were right in there. During the pandemic, we added a category because of online events, virtual events came in. So we said, now, what is the behavior shift between what you prefer uh, in the one column in person events versus the now new uh, or bigger opportunity of of online presence? As you can imagine, during the pandemic, uh, we we proved uh, unequivocally that exhibits and networking really did not work well in the at least the current iteration of what we were doing with virtual platforms. In fact, the net promoter score among exhibitors during the pandemic dropped to a precipitously low minus 78 um not not numbers any and that goes from a plus 11 in a normal benchmark year to a minus 78 significant drop they did not like virtual and as we know that funds a lot of our activity uh, in the event space so where is that where is that landing now so prior to the pandemic in-person events uh education and keynotes Millennials leading the way with this have come out now strongly. I'm hesitant to call it a benchmark yet, but the, this round networking jumps all the way to the top. They shift their education behavior over to the virtual platform side. They say, and we all know online learning has worked worked before the pandemic. It's better now that we're all educated on uh, all these platforms. Um, so it it now is networking exhibits education sessions, keynotes, and I'll be candid, special events kind of is the other category. It, it's, you have to narrow things down in a research pool. So to be fair, I would I would call that the other category and it's dropped to the bottom. That That's a significant shift and um, we we need to dig into what that means and we did in, in some of the data as well. What does networking mean to a millennial? And uh, they led the way, they pulled it up, but ev- honestly, it was uh, the number one or two response, even for Gen X and boomers as well. But things have shifted. Is that you think, and obviously you, you probably want to do more research in this, but you feel like this is people realize that they can do things online and it actually works pretty well. So now that they're kind of saying, if we're going to meet face to face, I want to do the meeting part. I want to do the gathering part rather than the consuming of content. 
Yeah, I think that we knew that didactic learning that would being, you know, sitting in rows, looking at a speaker on a stage, the sage from the stage, we knew that that was honestly, we saw trends prior to the pandemic that that style of learning was not working at an event going, you know, traveling to a major city to sit in a, you know, darkened conference room in a row of with a thousand people mm-hmm. um, wasn't wasn't great, particularly uh, in a lot of the activities that we saw on on keynotes or general sessions where, it, you know, it's one thing when you bring in Seth Godin, Simon Sinek, they're up on stage, we're all inspired. It's a big moment. They're great presenters. Those have always tracked quite well. But there's a lot of other stuff in that category of like award ceremonies and official business and other stuff where attendees are clearly telling us either don't do those activities at all, particularly the next generation. They're they're not into those activities. But or is there a better way to do this? We could could we just do this online? The old uh, that meeting should have been an email Mm -hmm. is now that event should have been a webinar. (laughs) And we. We've got to we've got to use the tools across the omni-channel correctly, right? What can we do in person? And it's clear that being inspired, connecting with colleagues, collaborating through education, um, actually peer-to-peer types of educational opportunities, room for uh, going around and spending time in the void, wellness, leisure, all activities that are strongly coming out. What we have to see is, is this a reaction to being locked up in our homes for the last two and a half, three years, or is this the net new? I'm here to tell you, I think it's a good portion of the net new based on what we're seeing, particularly with the emergence of millennials in the in the B2B attendee space. Okay. What does this mean for attendance? You know, I think one of the things we've been tracking for a while, and, and we had this through this number out of like 65% attendance, you had research that also pointed to 64 or 65% of, you know, 2019 levels. I think your latest research points a little bit higher. Um, what does this mean for people that are marketing events, at, you know, finding that those yeah. attendees? So as you can imagine, we're tracking that. We track it quarterly. Um, We look at all of the attendance uh, against prior norms. Um, A couple of things to to key in on on attendance. First of all, across the industry, we all want to compare and go back to 2019. Um, I think that's a poor mentality. I think we should be talking a growth mindset. How do we take what we have and grow forward? That's a topic for another day. But 2019 was actually statistically the highest attendance across the events industry in 20 years of tracking. So first of all, when we say we want to go back to 2019, we're going back to a year that was a non, that was uh, not normal. Um, it was up by about 8%. So take that for where you're at, but that that's your comparison. Looking at it quarterly, if we look at, we, we would say strong recovery started in about July of 21. Even though Delta started to emerge, that was when people kind of set aside uh, their frustrations and said, we got to get back to it. And even through Delta and Omicron, we saw activity emerging. That activity that fall of 21, we were seeing across the industry uh, in the 50% range. We then together tracked and actually reported out that we lined up with our research with you within margin of error in spring. That was in May at roughly 64, 65% to your point. 
We tracked at the end of Q3, so this would be through uh, through the end of September, that that we were now on track at 84%. We saw a pretty good growth from uh, Q2, which was the spring numbers you're referring to, to Q3. Let me give you a little bit of, uh, of insider, though, on how those numbers really break down and what we think they mean. First of all, if you're listening to this and you do smaller meetings or different kinds of meetings, Freeman's research is focusing on large meetings and conferences. Our events, our small events are two to 5,000. Our uh, mid-sized events are that, you know, five to 10,000 range, and then 10,000 to 75,000 large events. And then we have a handful of mega events that are that 75,000 plus. That's, that's the picture we're looking at. The second piece that we have to look at is by industry vertical. What's leading is manufacturing and supply chain. If you've heard anything the last year in the news, we know that we had supply chain problems. We can track a lot of that back statistically to the lack of meetings, that a lot of forecasting and planning, there's a lot of backroom conversations at those big manufacturing conferences where people order a lot of widgets a long ways in advance, and the pieces that make up those widgets that become the who's a widgets. That those things put together caused a supply chain problem, right? We didn't know how to forecast correctly. Events were a piece of that. Those categories are leading at 110, 120% of previous. They are having booming events. They're doing really so well. So you're saying they're actually 10% larger than in 2019? Yes. Yeah. Uh, some, some examples of that would be like Modex. Modex was in Atlanta in May. They actually were up 20% uh, from, they were 120% of 2019. But the other side of it, what's pulling these things down is for a lot of reasons that I think we can all understand with the pandemic, healthcare is not recovering at that same rate. Healthcare in the same periods that I just mentioned, if we were at 50% in fall of 21, healthcare was in the 30s. And when we were talking about 65% last spring, healthcare was around 51%. Healthcare really didn't move as much. They moved from 51 to end of Q3, where the rest of the industry is at 84. They are at 56. So they have not been moving as rapidly. A lot of that, they've been frontline. They're still dealing with it. We have the famous triple-demic here in the U.S. of RSV flu and COVID still going on. Um, they're exhausted. And frankly, time, for things we don't have time to get into today, their business model has been completely disrupted with the worldwide pandemic. Everything about the way they bill, the way they structure hospitals, et cetera, was, was changed and disrupted. And it's going to take time to get back to uh, net normal, not the least of which is the drug pipeline, med tech pipeline was disrupted with the FDA. Almost no approvals and net new were coming in, which drive events. So that category has been significant. It's interesting because you can look at those numbers and you know, so many questions come up and, and we don't have time to cover everything. But, you know, I'm thinking supply chain was really disrupted during the pandemic. So it kind of makes sense that there's a lot of events around supply chain to kind of everything starting back up. You need to be out there. You need to be selling. Right. So I think one could argue and you let me know if I'm thinking about this wrong. One could argue that that's a bit of pent up demand as well. And that will probably kind of go back into a sort of you know, average. Yeah, if I'm sitting across, if I'm sitting across the table with some of our supply chain and manufacturing partners, and they continue to try to project these kinds of numbers with us, we would say, let's set our expectations um, and come in on the cautious side. Mm -hmm. That's helped us quite well across the pandemic recovery. Yeah. Is to say, 
let's, you know, much to the chagrin of some of my sales partners at, at Freeman, will say, no, let's be, let's be conservative. Let's beat our numbers. Let's not. And and we've been able to do that. That we've taken a conservative approach to recovery where we need to. That's hard when you're talking about all of the labor demands and various things that the whole industry has been suffering from because they want you to take a heavily optimistic look. But yes, those kinds of factors like, is this a forever thing? Or, you know, I think we'll see uh, 20, most prognosticators would tell you that 2024 is when we'll start to see things level out. Mm -hmm. I agree with that uh, somewhat. I think we may be a little further out. I'm, I'm kind of looking at about a three-year window right now where we're going to see some fluctuations that are going to kind of create what the next normal might look like. And that next normal is not the next 10, 15, 20 years. It'll be the kind of an ongoing two to three year cycle, <laughs> in my opinion. It's fascinating. Anything else from the data that you wanted to highlight? Yeah, I think that um, the beyond the numbers and these new behaviors, I think that uh, a couple of key things that that Skift has done a great job on, so I won't dig into. But Blazor came out at a very high level, so everybody's talking about Blazor across the industries. That is certainly a short-term major trend. What does that mean for the average event planner? I think it means that um, maybe high, they're not going to change the location of their event to you know we they, they can't all cram their events into warm sunny places with palm trees. Um, so I think millennials, we have to dig into that behavior and say. What does Blazor mean to them? Well, they're very food centric. So uh, I was planning an event in Dallas. Most people wouldn't think of Dallas with all deference to Dallas as a Blazor location. I went in with a um, cybersecurity event and said, what if we put uh, all of these wonderful food, art and culture destinations into our marketing? We provide shuttle services one way out to these districts that are outside of the typical footprint of the convention center it's hard for it's hard for organizers to get out of the mindset that we have to captive them in the convention center millennials particularly aren't going to put up with that they want to explore they don't they're not going to put up with the 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 normal food that we would serve at a convention center they want an experience and so i think the bleasure piece we should be reflecting on what are the unique cultural aspects, food aspects, dine around. And I think it leads to the networking piece. I just planned an e event using our data where we're actually doing effectively big matchmaking events at really great food destinations. So you and I might be paired up, Miguel, to go to a really great Peruvian restaurant in Boston that we have found. We all agree we like the food and we have some things in common. Let's put eight of us at dinner. Now we're meeting a networking and a leisure type of mindset. And then, of course, the extending. I'm doing it with my wife. I have an event in Palm Springs coming up. It's our uh, wedding anniversary, we'll spend a few extra days. So it's as simple as that and as complex as really weaving into the marketing piece. So I think leisure will continue to play out. It's a, it's a, I call it revenge travel pent up from the pandemic. Um, so we'll see how long that lasts, but I think there are some pieces in it of a higher experience. You know, the, the millennials are called the experience generation. They lead the experience economy. What does that mean? I think Bleasure is a big key to that. Um, so that that's the, the other piece. I think the last piece I would just highlight from the data um, is the com 
what I would consider almost the completion of a trend that was happening prior to the pandemic. And that is, I don't know how many times I'm sure in your experience, you've heard this, an event planner will say, well, that's great, but my audience, my attendees want something different than what you're saying, that they are XYZ industry and they're different than the rest. And what we were seeing prior to the pandemic, probably for 15 or 20 years, was the collapse of the business persona, the nine to five persona that said, I am separating business from from, uh, my personal life. That was collapsing already. The pandemic accelerated it and millennials don't even recognize it. So we asked them, is it important that your professional and personal relationships and interests overlap or are aligned? Or is it not important? And this is a hard one to describe on a podcast, but I'll just give it to you. Uh, 42% said it's important that they fully overlap of the overall respondent pool. 33% said it's important that they at least are aligned. So that's a new mindset, right? 75% said either overlap or align. There were 25% said it's not important that they overlap. Who do you think that 25% were? If you look at the generations, it's our boomers that they were taught that we separate business from from pleasure, these things. Even the concept of leisure uh, is almost not just foreign, but I've even found it with some of my colleagues in that age group. They look at me like my head fell off when I start talking about leisure or getting food destinations away from the convention center, et cetera. That 25% was 96% boomer that said that boomer or even slightly older. So 75% and yet representing the entire new category are saying business and personal are overlapped. What does that mean for us as marketers that are attracting people to events? It means their consumer persona, their consumer expectations, the consumer marketing uh, vehicles that are used on personalization, digital uh, acquisition, et cetera, are forefront. This is a digital native group Many of us have spoken about that more than I ever could, but really cementing that we better stop looking at this through the lens of they are an engineer, a doctor, a lawyer, and look at them through the lens of where they sit in their consumer world. And their consumer world is divided by primarily gender education and income, not uh, their their age as much. It's, It's really looking at it through that lens. So I think that shift is what's going to drive us forward and probably impact the next several generations of of new behavior. Fascinating. I mean, and that leads to conversations like festivalization and all these kind of things where you change things to really attract what you personally enjoy and not necessarily what you expect people from a certain professional demographic yeah. to enjoy. We led a group of 100 event planners in San Diego last month on partnering them with large groups that do festivals, food and wine, uh, Comic-Con, you know, all the, 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 the festival types of concerts, music thing. We brought in traditional meeting planners and said, what can we learn from each other? That's the kind of thing that the data should drive us to do. And, and in our case did, but we should continue to look for certainly. Love it. Bringing, bringing influences from outside the industry and kind of causing those, those crashes of ideas, right? Yeah. Constructively. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We just get in our own little echo chambers, which is problems we aren't going to solve today. But um, getting outside of that, bringing some understanding of the kinds of challenges, opportunities, what's working, what's not working. The exciting thing is 
focusing on the lens of consumer. There are billions and billions and billions of dollars being spent on how to understand and respond. The average association in the past would say, I don't have the dollars to do that kind of research or understand that kind of marketing. Guess what? Others are investing for you. Lean into it, learn from it, clash those cultures and learn from them. And I think you'll find tremendous success going forward with with the net new audiences and trends that we're seeing. Love it. Thank you for that. I think that that leaves the paints a very interesting picture from the data, which is exactly what I think I wanted to also get, not just numbers, but you know, interpretations of what they mean. And we could all be wrong, right? We These numbers could mean something completely different, but it's important to look at the numbers and say, hey, what do we think this means, right? And, and, and plan forward. I think the behavior, at least in the short term, is certainly painting that the, the data is correct. But to your point, I, I don't think these are long-term count on this forever types of things. Mm-hmm. So I think that the takeaway is continue to learn from your audience, continue to do the research on your own audience, consume as much information as you can as you make decisions, and um, understand that that things are going to shift faster than you're probably comfortable with. Most of us leading the events industry are not in some of those younger generations. Although I would say the fastest growing group of exhibit managers, which is effective in the trade show side, is Gen Z. I saw it come to life at an event last week where the bulk of the net new exhibit managers leading significant brands at a major event were all Gen Z in their young 20s. We better pay attention that the, the things are shifting quickly and will continue to accelerate that shift. I expect booth design and, and kind of how they work will, will shift a lot depending on, on who's managing. Uh, even the concept of booths. Um, I, I won't tease that out here, but I, I think the concept of booths and what that means and sponsorships and activations are going to get tossed tossed around quite a bit Excellent. by this group. Ken, thank you so much for, for sharing all that with us. It was really fascinating. I wanted to end the podcast with the um, asking you for a recommendation of someone else who you respect and admire and who you think may be a, a good guest here on the podcast. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. We really, really appreciate the partnership and the, the what Skift brings to the industry. We really appreciated your research. Um, I will put my good friend, Mary Fenstrom on the spot. She is the senior director of of experiences for Workday. Uh, she is just a, a phenomenal leader. So Mary, um, when you hear this, uh, I'll, I'll be pinging you to let you know that I put you on the spot, but I'd love to see you talk with Miguel uh, on the podcast. I think you have a tremendous amount to offer to the industry and what you're learning. I appreciate that and uh, love the recommendation. So appreciate that as well. Ken, thanks again for joining us today. To everybody listening, it's been Ken Halsinger. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I hope you learned a lot. I did. And uh, I hope you Join us again on the Event Manager Podcast soon. I will. We're continuing to do research. We'll have next quarter coming out, uh, you know, mid midway through March and uh, look forward to talking again. It's exciting to, to be a part of what you're doing. Thank Excellent. you. Excellent. Thank you.